David delighted look. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. Yeah. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week, um, we are taking a look at 2014's Frank and Savantism. And to do that, I have a return guest, and I'm trying to remember the last time you guys for Joy Sandwich were on here. I know we had this, like, string of Boston movies. Well, welcome back. Glad to have you, both of you back on the show. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. So why don't you tell people about Joy Sandwich and where they can subscribe? Um, you can find us on Twitter. Oh, I'm testing her, Dave. I want to see if she even knows. At nope. Joy Sandwich. And I'm sure you can subscribe through many different avenues. So just do a little searchy for that. Those are all facts. That's and, true. Um, am I telling this? Sorry. Another <laughs> commentary. Um, and uh, Joy Sandwich is about anything that brings us or other people joy as i like i like to say that it's kind of become a little bit more about what brings other people joy and because i find anytime someone else is excited about something i'm like i love this thing i don't care that i don't love it yeah unless it's like their joy is the hate jessica club <laughs> i can get behind that one but i feel like otherwise I'm behind every other joy. Yeah, it's very infectious. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and I've said this many times before, but I will be a guest on the show, but for real this time. Uh, it's scheduled. It's on the calendar. It is. So it's going to happen. It's on the calendar for next week. <laughs> I know. It's coming In up. fact. All right. We're very excited. Um, so before we jump into Frank, we jump into the movie and the psychology and all that. Why don't you give us a couple movie recommendations? Yeah. So I, uh, my recommendations are kind of threefold, three avenues. And I'll start with with Room uh, being the first one. Uh, Room, like recent movies. Is there any movie that anything could fall into sort of tied tied into uh, the movie Frank? Well, Room was same director, director, right? Same director, exactly. Yeah. Uh, a movie that came out last year and I loved quite quite a bit. Um, just a pretty profound film, and I, I it, it it's sort of like after seeing Frank and then Room, I was like, yes, that Lenny Abramson guy is is my jam. So. That's one of my recommendations. Uh, the other, I have two others. One sort of, I think, uh, deals with generally like mental health in, I, I think, a, an important way. And that is a Pixar film, Inside Out. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like that movie. I think it does a fantastic job of just sort of emphasizing the fact that um, you know, all, all emotions are valid and, and we need to recognize that and talk about it and be open about it. And so that, that I really love that movie. And uh, Frank deals with mental health, uh, generally speaking, you know, mm-hmm. savantism and, and mental illness and these sorts of things. So um, I think Inside Out was a good choice. And the third one, uh, I'm going to give no, to Jessica. Have, have oh, you have one? <laughs> yeah, I have one. The third one uh, is the Fassbender Connection. Um, that's not the name of the movie. Uh, <laughs> I would I would watch that movie. <laughs> I know, right? Sold. That's like a yeah, sight unseen. Yes, please. 
so the film is Slow West. Um, oh, another good one, yeah. Yes, which is a, a sort of really unique Western film that came out a couple years ago, I think, uh, with Fassbender, Ben Mendelsohn. Uh, really a stunningly beautiful movie and uh, sort of caught Jessica and I by surprise, and we really oh. enjoyed that. And I think it's streaming. On... Yeah, I think it's on Amazon streaming. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. So what about you, Jess? Any uh, recommendations? All right, so um, one recommendation I have is not a movie. Okay. <laughs> she's always she's always breaking the fold. <laughs> Jerk. So wild do. card. <laughs> Seriously, major wild card. No, is um. So this is uh based around John Ronson. Like he kind of, oh. wrote, I think he wrote the screenplay and, and co-wrote right. the screenplay. Yeah. yeah Are we going to? So you've been publicly shamed. Is that? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That book. So I would highly recommend that book. Like I really like it, and I feel like you can feel if you like this tone of this movie and that character of Donald Donald. Donald Gleason, Donald, Donald Gleason. Um, then you will definitely. I mean, I feel like it, it captures his voice and tone very well in mm. a lot of ways at moments, which is, in some ways, he's like kind of down on himself and dis and sometimes unlikable, but he'll admit to that unlikability at moments. Mm. Um, so I think I think that I would highly recommend that and listen to an audiobook. So if you really just don't love reading words then just listen to them, <laughs> listen to them. <laughs> um because they're pretty um amazing uh, uh the second thing uh, so the second thing i'm going to recommend is it a movie <laughs> this is a movie podcast jessica <laughs> it's a movie <laughs> um i have a third one but i don't i can't really like i i can't you don't have to have three okay so the second one oh sorry i want to do it too i really do we don't need to do two or three really just but um the second <laughs> these one, are my roles movie, okay is uh is uh, about love with donald gleason don't don't make about, me pick fast about oh about time about, oh, time. about time yeah Not about, about time it does deal with love um but yeah about time and the reason i felt not only the the care the actor are um are the actors are the same same actor but uh also it i felt like it had a very touching message so I think that it kind of, and it dealt with this um, kind of element of, and I'll even say that it wraps up that story and it's kind of like a nice, it's a very nice story and tale. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and I think it handles, and which reminds me very much, I think Frank kind of has a nice little bow on it in a lot mm-hmm. of ways that it makes it, you leave with like a message and a feeling of what you should be getting from it. Um, and so, and I think it's a fairly more, uh, relatively more upbeat, positive of what we're learning about life kind yeah. of thing. I feel and like I, about time is upbeat and positive as long as you don't think about it too deeply. I think it's actually really dark and fucked up the more you think about it. Like it's about two guys lying to all the women in their lives. <laughs> that's what that's about. Like, I'm just going to do this until it's perfect and they never know. It's kind of no. creepy. Like if you think about it a little deeper, like on the surface, it's this nice, fluffy, like really cute romantic comedy. And then I started thinking about more and I was like, Ugh, well, especially the weird. first, <laughs> totally true because the first 
third, I was like a little bit worried with where this movie was going because the first third, it's a love story, right? You feel like right. it's a love story and it's super creepy, but then you realize it's really not about that. You know, it's, it's really not it's about a father them. and son story more than anything else. Yeah. Or it's yeah. like a life, like what you should learn and what you should get from things. And that in a way it's like, you're not using this stuff for, for evil. You're using it for just <laughs> literally for, you know, you're using it for, to gain something and that you're learning of something about life that is difficult to learn while you're in the middle of it. So it allows you to right. be a little bit removed at moments from it. So, nice. But, right. but yeah. Good pick. It yeah. is. It totally is. The first third of that movie, I was like real worried about where it was going. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you for those recommendations. Uh, we'll take a break and then I will talk about Savantism and then we'll bring uh, Jessa Known back to talk about the movie. Watched the movie, check, popped the popcorn, check, sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check, and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. <laughs> Didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. What's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new or possibly old breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so it's time for the psychology section. Today we're talking about savantism, or it's sometimes referred to as savant syndrome. And one thing I want to get out of the way, I know there um, there have been a lot of savants in in popular culture, in, in TV, in movies, in books, uh, and they tend to equate savantism with autism. And there are some savants, which we will talk about, who do have autism, but I don't want it to come across as if uh, I'm saying that all autistic people are like this because I think it's important that there is a range of experiences of autism spectrum disorder. Um, and savantism is actually a very small portion of that. Okay. So savant syndrome is a condition where a person with a developmental disability like autism spectrum disorder will demonstrate these profound and really amazing capacities or abilities that are way in excess of what would be considered normal. So People with savant syndrome also may have neurodevelopmental disorders, um, which include brain injuries. The most dramatic examples of savant syndrome will, will occur in individuals who actually score really low on IQ tests, but then they, they have these really exceptional skills in specific areas like mathematics, like rapid calculation, things you see like in the movie Rain Man, where you could count all the matchsticks, uh, in art, like we have uh, Frank, uh, uh, or in memory. Uh, any of these areas, you could have these really great abilities, but then overall, your IQ tends to be much lower. Although it's termed a syndrome, it's not a mental disorder, um, nor is it a part of medical manuals like the ICD-10 or the DSM-5. A separate form of savant syndrome is called acquired savant syndrome. So that's when a person gets these capabilities 
following dementia, a head injury, um, or other disturbance. So this syndrome is actually much rarer. Um, there's a study by Daryl Treffert in 2010 that said uh, there was a registry of 319 savants and only 32 of them had acquired savant syndrome, so like 10%. Okay, so as far as the characteristics of savantism, the savant skills are usually found in one or more of five major areas. So you have art, musical ability, calendar calculation, arithmetic, and spatial skills. Uh, the most common kind of autistic savants are what they call calendrical savants, or those who those who have the skill of calendar calculation. They can calculate the day of the week for any given date in any year with really amazing speed and accuracy. Memory feats are the second most common savant skill in, in that they found in a survey. So I mentioned that there is a bit of crossover between autism and savants. Basically, half of savants are autistic. The other half often have a central nervous system injury or disease. But among those with autism, about 10% have some sort of savant ability. So really, a yeah, yes, half of all savants are autistic, but only 10% of, of people with autism or autistic people have savant abilities. So we don't really, there's no really accepted cognitive theory that will, that will explain, that'll explain savantism. So, but it has been suggested that individuals with autism are, are tend to be biased towards detail focused processing. That's actually some of the, the signs of autism are like repetitive behaviors and uh, intense focus on one area, uh, one area of interest. This cognitive style can predispose people um, either with or without autism to these savant talents because they're so focused on that one thing. Another hypothesis is that savants do something called they hypersystemize. So it gives them an impression of talent. Hypersystemizing is an extreme state that classifies people based on their skills in empathizing with others versus systemizing facts about the external world. So if you're just so focused on the facts, then your your skill is going to be higher, right? Because that's all you're focusing on. The attention to detail savants is a consequence of enhanced perception or this kind of sensory hypersensitivity in these individuals. It has also been confirmed that some savants will operate by directly accessing low-level, less processed information that exists in all human brains that is not normally available to conscious awareness, and they're not accessing some of the higher-level stuff. Neurologically speaking, uh, it can result from damage to the left anterior temporal lobe, which is an area of the brain uh, that deals with processing sensory input. So it recognizes objects and forms memories. Savant syndrome has, has been artificially replicated using something called transcranial magnetic stimulation, um, which can temporarily disable areas of the brain. So if they uh, disable the left anterior temporal lobe, you can actually cause savant syndrome. Now, unfortunately, there's not a lot of objective statistics about how many people actually have savant skills. The estimates range from what's what they call exceedingly rare um, all the way to one in 10 people uh, with autism having savant skills in varying degrees. There's a 2009 study in Great Britain that had 137 parents of autistic children, and they found that 28% believe their children met the criteria for a savant skill defined as a skill or power at a level that would be unusual for normal people. But of course, we have to remember uh, that these are parents of these children, and they may – some parents may want their child to be a savant. Like it may, it, may, it may feel like, oh, they're special in this way, in this kind of socially approved way. So take that into account too. 
Uh, as many as 50 cases of acquired savant syndrome have been reported. Now, for whatever reason, we don't really know why, but there's many more men with savant syndrome. They tend they outnumber uh, women with savant syndrome by six to one. And this is even higher than the sex ratio disparity for autism, which is about 4.3 to one. So it's not just because there's more men who are autistic. There's also like this big, there's a big difference between that and the differences between men with savant syndrome as opposed to women. So uh, the history is not so great, like many things in psychology. So it started with the term idiot savant, which is uh, French for learned idiot or knowledgeable idiot. Uh, this was first used to describe the condition in 1887 by John Langdon Down. Um, he's also known for his description of Down syndrome. The term idiot savant was later described as uh, as a mistake, as a misnomer, because not all reported case fit the definition of idiot, which was the original term for a person with a very severe intellectual disability. The term autistic savant was also used as a description for this disorder. Like idiot savant, the term came to be considered a misnomer because only half of those who were diagnosed with savant syndrome were autistic. So upon realization of the need for this more accuracy in diagnosis and, frankly, dignity towards the individual, the term savant syndrome became widely accepted terminology. Okay, so the article we're looking at today is uh, about autism and what's called pitch processing. They're hoping to find that this is a precursor for savant musical ability. And they, of course, chose autistic children because 50% of savants are diagnosed with autism. This is from Heaton, Hermelin, and Pring in 1998. So in this study, what they did, they took 10 autistic boys between the ages of 7 and 13 years old. Um, and they gave them an IQ test, which ranged anywhere from 55 to 127. So the, the mean or the average is 85, which is below average. It's about a standard deviation below average. Uh, they were all attending the school for autistic children. In this group, nine of these children were diagnosed as autistic and one with Asperger's syndrome, which of course is no longer uh, a DSM diagnosis. Now it would be just high-functioning autism. So during these tests, they gave them kind of two stimuli. Um, they used tones and speech sounds. So they gave musical tones of C, E, G, and B flat, um, and they were presented on an, on an electronic keyboard. And then the spoken speech sounds were la, ta, da, and ha. Each of the tones and speech sounds were presented in conjunction with a picture of an animal. All of these pictures were taken from a, an older test that have been kind of normed on these populations. So they gave them the test once, which they termed like a familiarization session, and then they engaged the child in a conversation about a totally unrelated topic for a period of about two and a half minutes. This is a pretty standard distraction technique for memory tests. The four animal pictures were then again placed together before the child, and then the previously presented tones were sounded over 16 trials in a randomized order so that every tone was heard four times. The child was asked to respond to each sounded tone by pointing to the animal that liked the tone the best. So they, earlier they had been kind of paired the tone with the animal, so that's what they're trying to access there. And then later, after a week's interval, a memory test was carried out. The four animal pictures were again placed before the child, and then the previously presented tones were again sounded over 16 trials, just like before. And again, the child was asked to identify each animal's favorite note. Now, the speech sounds were tested on separate occasions. The identification and memory of these speech sounds was used as kind of a control condition for pitch identification and memory. 
So what they're doing here is by using a comparable method for the two types of stimuli, they were ensuring that any emerging overall group differences would not be due to this kind of differential ability to cope with the experimental procedure, but to instead reflect an actual difference between the groups in dealing with the stimuli. So for the speech sounds condition, four new animal pictures were selected to be paired with la, ta, da, and ha. Uh, the procedure used for training identification memory was was exactly the same as as the as the one previously used for pitch. So what they found is that although both groups identified and recalled speech sounds equally well, the students with autism demonstrated a, a superior ability for single note identification over both time intervals, so both right away and with that week's difference. So it's possible that. Autistic children have an enhanced capacity to process and retain isolated, context-independent elements of these stimuli. So it's possible that this could kind of lead us to see why uh, many more – why it's more likely for um, children who are autistic to actually end up with savant syndrome because they're just predisposed for it. So kind of interesting. All right, uh, so that's it for the psychology section. We're going to take a little break and then uh, bring Joy Sandwich back to talk about Frank. Most people know Stanley Kubrick as one of the greatest filmmakers of our time. But did you know that later in his career, he was so embarrassed by his first and lowest rated film, Fear and Desire, that he tried to stop it from being seen by the public? Hi, I'm Nate Jones. And I'm Austin Gold. And together we co-host the Best and Worst of the Best podcast, a show where we pit a great director's highest and lowest rated films on IMDb against each other to see what exactly went right and what went oh, oh so wrong. wrong. We've already covered directors like Stanley Kubrick, the Coen brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, and many more. Check us out at bwbpod.com and let us know what great director you think had the biggest blunder. All right. So we're back now. Uh, we're back now to talk about Frank. So Obviously, uh, you guys have been on the show. I like to kind of ask what your history with the movie is. And this, for me, was a movie that I totally missed on theatrical release, like didn't even really hear about it, and then saw it a year later uh, in 2015 and was totally blown away. Like I I absolutely fell in love with this movie. And it's a movie that I've watched three or four times. And like if you just told me like, oh, it's about this musician with this giant paper mache head. You know, like it's it's a hard movie to describe. It's a hard movie to like sell people. So I could see mm-hmm. why a lot of people didn't see it. But it's one of those that I find myself rewatching and recommending to people a lot. So what about your history with Frank? Well, thank goodness, because our friendship it can only stay intact if we all agree on this. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I agree completely. It's a very good movie. Yeah, when did we see it? I'm we trying to remember. We didn't see it in theaters. We didn't see it in theaters. At the same time. It was, I think, I'm pretty sure it was 2015. It was on, like, it was like an on-demand type of thing, I think. You had mm. heard of it, and you had kind of said, and I was like, Fastbender, I'm in. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. What? I never see this man. <laughs> never see his sweet, sweet face. Yeah, you know, I think I saw, like, a trailer, and I was like, okay, this, I, I like the tone of this. I love Fastbender. I love Donald Gleason. I love Scoot McNary. I love... Um, Gyllenhaal. So uh, this 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 sounds fun. It's got that sort of Irish quirk 
darkness to it that mm -hmm. that I kind of like. And um, yeah, I, I was blown away. I, I, I really do love Frank. All right. Um, so let's jump into the direction. So you mentioned uh, directed by Lenny Abrahamson, who has gotten much more well known in the past year because of Room. Uh, which I still maintain is a fine movie and not a great movie. I think it has an amazing central performance, but to me, it 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 doesn't quite feel complete. Whereas for me, this is his most complete film. I think this is a better film than Room, but it's it's an odder film than Room. It's definitely not. I, I'm still trying to figure out who saw this and went like, yeah, give him this big book property that sold millions of copies and we're going to try and make an Oscar run out of like, I want to meet mm -hmm. the person who made that connection mm. because I can't imagine most studio executives going like, yeah, that weird Frank movie. We're going to give him this, this Oscar run movie, but I'm so glad mm. they did. Um, so what did you think of his direction in Frank in particular? Direction I think is really well done. I, I, you know, I always feel, I always get a sense, but I always, you're right. I have a, I'm not sure if the direction problem for for room is a problem that you're the things that you're talking about is a problem because of direction or because of perhaps right writing or storyline. Right. Mm. I mean, I really love a lot of the shots and I don't know. No, you're more of the director kind of. No, I mean, I, you know, whenever you ask us this, Dave, I, I always think like, Oh shit. Yeah. We're not, we don't know. Nothing. We're, we know nothing. Like, you know, I <laughs> like, I, I do like love the, opening to this movie and i think it mm. like says a lot about like we're in this character like i love how we're we're with this donald gleason character and he's sort of walking the streets of his town and that actually you know foreshadows that comes back later in the film which i really like mm -hmm. uh and you get this sense of like you know who this character is um you get the sense that you know he's got a certain level of like uh, I'm seeking this sort of inspiration, you know, mm -hmm. some may call it sort of manufactured inspiration. Right. Um, and I like, I, I just like that whole setup. Like it, it, it's, it's almost like it's shot like very insularly, uh, narrowly. And then as the film progresses, it sort of broadens in a sense. He does a nice job with intimate. Like you mm -hmm. feel very part of this small group. I mean, obviously again, in room that's like, you feel like you're very much there, but like of kind of allowing you to feel part of that small, even, a, even in a big landscape, like you feel part of that group or that, that very specific, like if you, if you look at the movie, I mean, I don't even, there's very few obviously characters outside of the main, the main ones. Yeah. Right. right. I think the only time we start getting any other person is once they go to South by Southwest. Right. right? And then that's the first time. So the first, most of the movie is really spent in, in that cabin, right. Or in that, that kind of life. And I think that that he does a nice job with feeling like it's, it feels very full and rich and like close and intimate. Yeah. I think it also throughout the entire film in different ways, always feel like you're in Donald Gleason's head, like from the very opening shot where he's just staring out at the, at the ocean. And then especially that just joyfully weird moment when Frank first shows up and the way it's shot with shadow and you, and you're not even sure what you're looking at. Like as he mm. comes out, you're just like, I've never seen anything like this. And I love that this movie just has the guts to just be odd and to not cater 
to an audience and just like, we're just going to go all out. And I love that moment. And I think you get that sense of wonder, not only from the way it's shot, but also from Donald Gleason's kind of reactions where he just, he stops playing for a minute and he's not mm-hmm. ready because he's just so wowed. And then you feel wowed. And then later on in the film, as he's like in the cabin and growing that like ridiculous beard uh, that he <laughs> has in the movie, you you get the sense as he feels more comfortable with this group of of weirdos. And so do you as the audience. And I think a lot of that tone is due to Abr- Abr- Abrahamson's direction. And what a perfect casting. Oh, yeah. Like Absolutely. every single, I mean, everyone, like with the French, the two French Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, every person, I mean, feels both like a real person and yet like a, like not a real person. Like a caricature a little bit too. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But then it feels like you feel, it feels very authentic in a lot of it's ways. It's caricature, so. but it's also like has some depth. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and Donald Gleason, he is just, he is very good. He's a I great guess. everyman. Like I think he's perfectly yeah. cast here. Yeah. Absolutely. And, he's, and, and he, he really feels like the outsider the entire time. Even when he does, you think, yes, he is part of the group. Then he like says something and you realize how like, not. Oh, you is. are, you are normie. Like you and can't, he, <laughs> you're not at the edges, man. Like, <laughs> and he, and, and I that's think such he, a depressing he's, moment. <laughs> he's, I, yeah. well, he's such a, he's such a, um, can be such an unlikable character. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and he plays that so well in because how hard is it to play and just I mean sometimes I think he's just atrocious right horrible and then but then at the same time I have to be able to relate to him because there's no way I'm going to relate to the other people right and so <laughs> I feel like oh and then I was like gosh I've definitely been that person or I've definitely oh, yeah. thought that way yeah or felt that way I think the other moment that really gets me as far as the mood he sets is the moment when they finish recording their album and there's this weird mixture of accomplishment and just this emptiness that that happens yeah. after you create where you're just like now we're done like what do we even do now uh and mm-hmm. then of course it kind of culminates with the with the suicide of of one of the major characters and that shot particularly with you know he's hanging and that giant head on top like it's such an eerie sight like it's this also this movie also like strangely like it borders between heartbreaking and comical which is yeah. which is a really difficult balance but you never feel like anyone in the movie is being mocked but there are moments where you almost want to laugh even when these terrible things are happening because everyone in the movie is such it's such kind of a ridiculous character in one way or another yeah i think like, oh my gosh when they take that, the, the, the ashes, the ashes to the thing, yeah, you know? that, right. that scene uh I, it's i mean you can't it's it's super depressing but you can't help because everyone is, is 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 very much like acting the part and like mm-hmm. this is but but like you said it's also pretty comical and the tone of the movie really feels like John, it captures the tone of John Ronson. Mm. Like it really, especially like, the, like I said, sometimes he kind of mentions this kind of dislike for himself and his own choices and actions in right. a way. Um, and, um, but I, I was reading this article and it was talking about the truth and like, what is the truth and what wasn't? Cause Frank Sidebottom, who he played with, wanted this actually made. He said he wanted, he needed this because it, he had kind of lost Frank. And so he asked him to kind of work on this, like writing for him and and then he died during it. And um John Ronson made the discussed how he ended up it he never wanted it to be an actual representation of the Frank that he played with. He wanted it to be pieces of it, but he wanted it to be more of a fable. Right. 
And I thought that was a really interesting. And then I was like thinking about it from the perspective of, of a fable, which is like, which makes the, the rounding character again is Donald Gleason. Like all the other characters are kind of, they're like real, but they're not. And then it's really about how Donald Gleason reacts to all of them and what he learns from it and mm-hmm. what he, you know, and all this stuff, especially Frank, right? Like he's this kind of interesting character, but, and then when I thought of it from a fable perspective, I was like, ah, no, now it doesn't bother me. Well, in the fable, I, I think I like that fable idea. Cause I think that really works within the context of like the quirky band like this, you know, right. it really, I think that really works. And I, I, you know, I, there are some hyperbolic elements to the storytelling and the characterization, um, but like you said, I think I think it works because the context of of this band and and the fact that it, we, we're seeing it through the lens of this this character who's who's a little bit, you know, like you said, unlikable and has, you know, is sort of coming from like an opposite place from these other band members. Um, so let's talk about the, the acting a little bit. Uh, so starting, of course, with Michael Fassbender as Frank, like, I mean, I'm as probably as big of a fan of Michael Fassbender as you can get. Like I watch him in anything. I think even in movies that I think are terrible, if he's in them, I will enjoy his performance. Like the latest X-Men movie, for instance, which I thought was garbage, but he was really good. Um, So he's one of those actors who just like, there's very few actors like this where I'm like, if he's in it or she's in it, I'm going to watch it. But he's in that category. And I just love that he has the, not the guts, but he has the kind of nerve to play a character like this. Like if you look at his uh, filmography, like this is after like these big budget movies, like he did um, Prometheus and he did the X-Men movies. And then he did this, like that's not the usual path you see. Usually this is the stuff you do early in your career and late in your career. And I love that at like the height of his, per- his popularity, he's going to do this weird little Irish movie where he's not seen for most of the film. Like he's he's covered, you know, and he does uh, little tricks with his voice where you can't like if I didn't know he was in this, uh, there's only like one moment, I think, in the film before he takes the head off that I would recognize his voice. And it's when he's speaking German to that uh, to that couple. And then I'm like, oh, there it is. But the rest of the movie is like this weird kind of vocal tick going on. And his performance here. It's so phenomenal, like underneath, underneath that head, the fact that he can emote and he can draw you in without like he's stripped of a lot of his tools, like everything that you trust and love about Michael Fassbender is no longer there. And I love that he still shines through in this performance. David, delighted look. Delighted (laughs) Delighted. look. Yes. Yeah, it's quite the heady performance. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Come on, we got a few more. Come on, that was pretty good. I got to admit, that was pretty good. Um, Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. I I think he's one of those actors that um, I'm I'm always there for him. I (laughs) always I'm always there for you, Michael. Um, If if only. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, I I I love the thing that he does does with his voice here. Um, I think it's it's almost like he's just creating like another character in a way and um i thought like if like trying to think about it like that 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 frank character with the paper mache head and hearing actual michael fassbender's voice it it might not work i don't think it would you know i think it would totally take you out of it you're like oh it's michael fassbender under there yeah but the fact that he disguises himself and especially there's one particular scene where he he wants to make likable music that whole scene where he's like 
almost manic like he's so giddy in that scene and it's such a wonderful performance and so separate from everything else he's done in the film but yet still feels like this complete character i'm writing my most likable song ever i've always dreamed that one day i'd have a band member who shared my vision of creating extremely likable music so thank you john you gave me the little push i needed okay Enough chatter. Here it is. My most likable song ever. Coca-Cola, lipstick ring, go dance all night, dance all night. I've got dancing legs. Woo! I've got dancing legs. They won't stop the dancing, no. They won't stop the dancing. Kiss me, just kiss me. Kiss me, Nefertiti. Just the way you like it. Just the way you like it. Me, kiss me, lipstick, kiss me, lipstick, Ringo, that's the way you like it. This is your most likable song ever? <laughs> yeah. People will love it. He is manic. Oh, it's such a heart, it's such a weirdly heartbreaking scene. But I love Jillian Hall's response. Right. Um, which is, <laughs> I think it's amazing. <laughs> like, I think, because it is it's his most likable and it's like still it's crazy, but now it's like still totally unlikable. And you just realize, right. And you kind of think that she's going to say she's going to hate it. And then her response is that I love it. And her like just deadpan. Do you believe her though in that moment? I don't buy that for a second. I think she's trying to like set him up to go back to what they do best, you know, like just push him until he fails and then he'll come back. Yeah. I didn't buy it. You know, maybe because we know later she starts stabbing people. Maybe she's not <laughs> terribly trustworthy. Chinchilla. I'll tell you why I buy it because okay. I don't think she had any problem with saying when she thought it was horrible. Right? But has she ever said that to Frank? She's only I said that to our main character because she hates him. <laughs> yeah, but she did say to him them like she says right away that she doesn't think that. Like she's saying that this isn't a good idea. I don't know. You're right. I mean, she might not be, but I mean, at the same time, does she, I mean, you're right. Whether she's sarcastic or not, whether she's being, it's totally hard to tell, tell, but I feel like he would know. Right. But that she doesn't even, she realizes that there's no, that that would be better to her. I think that would be a hundred times better than what, what's his name comes and do does. Mm -hmm. So like, even if, if she thinks that's shit, she still thinks that's better shit than what Donald Gleason did. Oh, I'd agree with that for sure. Yeah. So absolutely. it's kind of like I think that she almost has this relief feeling of like, okay, he's still his weird, crazy him. Like he's still yes. not like he like this he's still mine in some ways, mm-hmm. right? And that and that so I think that there's a little bit of relief after he plays it, because I think she's dreading listening to what he's come up with. And so when he comes up with this kind of bizarrely atrocious likable thing that she's like that's exactly like why I love you because you, this is exactly the kind of thing that I think it's not to cater to anyone right like, like only his, he would come up with this like and, a true individual even when he's trying to be likable and talk about coca-cola and like he's still <sighs> this complete original so speaking of Maggie Gyllenhaal I want 
the two of you to try to explain to me why I love this performance because I can't I can't quite put it in words because everything about it screams like over the top and crazy and too much. But I love every ounce of this performance. Like, and I think mm. it's also another one of those performances that I'm not sure I could imagine anyone else in that role. Like, I just think she's so fantastic here. But it is like way over the top. It is like every every interaction is heightened. Uh, but maybe that just works because the movie is that way. Like everything is heightened to our to our main character. Every like you got the people speaking French, and you've got guy in a paper mache head, and you've got this this chick showing up in the kitchen with a knife, where the scene looks like a horror movie. Like it just <laughs> you know. So maybe that's why. But I just I love her performance here. Yeah, I think uh, what works for me um, is just in the character and how that character. Yes, certainly like. Uh, rough around the edges, harsh, <laughs> uh, you know, passionate, uh, individual, mm. but deeply like cares about Frank. Yeah. Um, and that, that's what makes, that's what gives her a little softness, I think. And, you know, and, and as a, as a viewer, you're sort of starting to really understand Frank to a certain extent mm. as best you can uh, until you see that sort of like the end of the film. Yeah. But you you start to see uh, layers of Frank and understand sort of his psychosis a little bit and his sort of relation to the world. And um, she is sort of she's very clearly, you know, she loves him deeply. And I think that that that's what works for me. Yeah. Yeah, there's it's intense, but there's a reason behind it. It's not just for the sake of being over the top. It's all rooted in this care that she has for him that maybe she yeah. doesn't really know how to how to express. I think in different ways, both she and Frank are terrible at expressing like mm -hmm. feelings of connectedness and feelings of love towards one another. Yeah. Yeah. I think it does a nice job. I mean, it it really does toe a difficult line, which is it could easily go over to the most ridiculous. Right. Like um, unlikable, crazy, just nutty character but it does i think all of the characters within that band play a very specific role and like and so it, they all kind of have these really i think fantastical things about them mm -hmm. and so her things her the idea that she is so she can see so many different levels to her at the same time. So she's very flat and very predictable in a lot of ways. Like she is exactly what she seems to be, which is, you know, she says it kind of, she kind of, and she matches, especially with Frank, who's kind of an optimist so nicely because she's so right. You think, why right. would she want to be around? He seems, I mean, when he's like spinning with the, the Dutch or the German <laughs> or the <laughs> I love that scene. spinning with the woman and that she's leaving and that she feels – so there's little nice moments that they do throughout the movie that warms her and makes it feel less about her just being a, a crazy stereotype and more right. about that, that three-dimensional character. Yeah. Um, so they balance each other out. Yeah, and that yeah. she and they, and they do a nice job at revealing her to be more – like I would say the most – until maybe the end, but the, the, at times the most removed character is Frank from – I mean – he seems so much like an unreal person and so much like a fantasy or like a, just a, um, just not a real, like he seems, cause especially cause you're going from Donald Gleason, right. Who is in 
awe of him. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at him as this kind of awe and like he, he's built up to be this amazing artist and just like, you know, he, how easy everything comes to him. Yeah. Her protectiveness was accurate. Right. That he was, he, that Donald Gleason was so far up his own ass, right? Like of what he wanted and what he imagined life to be and what he imagined stardom and music and art to be that she could see that. And, and she seems like the most annoying character because, but because of the way the movie rounds out. And I think that especially at the end and stuff like that, that, you know, you just realize that she was right. Like she, she knew that this was, that these people have come together for one another and for art, not for anything else. All right. So let's talk about the the script a little bit. It's interesting when I was thinking about the script and the screenplay here, if you really kind of break it down into like events that happen, not that much actually happens, right? He gets involved with the band. They go off to this cabin, they, they make an album and then they go to South by Southwest and everything goes to shit. Right. So not a lot of discrete events, but I think this movie has a lot to say, like kind of subtextually about, about being creative. And I think known at the very beginning, you talked about this, like this idea of inspiration and like, if there is such a thing as like true inspiration, or if this is something that is, that is created. Uh, And I Mm -hmm. love, there's a scene between uh, Donald Gleason's character and Frank, and they're talking, he's talking about in voiceover, his like, his core songwriting themes, you know, like he's very, he's like trying to craft uh, his, his art, whereas Frank just creates it. And I like seeing that kind of that dissonance between the two and how much of how much in awe he is of Frank because he'll just, you know, see a tuft of a tuft on the uh on the couch and create a song mm-hmm. about it. And it's the same thing that Donald Gleason's try tries to do in the beginning of the film when he's making songs about right. rolling waves or the 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 woman in the red coat like he just and he right. just right. can't quite access it. And I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot it's talking about kind of like how how frustrating it can be to be stuck in your head and to be too intellectual when you're trying to create art, because I think that is one of the things that really limits him. And that's why he needs to be around people like Frank to just kind of make him stop thinking for a second and just kind of experience what's going on. And I think, I think that's kind of the arc of his character and the growth that, that he makes during this film. Yeah. I I love, I love what you just said. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I think this movie does a really good job of, just commenting on that, you know, what, what is art? Um, how do we create? I think a lot of us like creative types have always, you know, we're, we're all, we've all experienced that moment that, that Donald Gleason's character starts at the beginning where you're sort of, ah, like I, I'm walking out here. I'm like, I got to find inspiration, you know, it's like, you're, you're sort of, you're, you're overthinking it, as you said. And I think, um, it's easy to get to that place. Uh, but I think there's a lot to creating and not, you know, just not putting too much thought into it. Right. Yeah, it's like waiting uh, for that I, perfect moment. And there is no perfect moment. Just no, go. cause because life is like messy and, and, and absurd. And, and, um, <laughs> you know, you never know where inspiration is going to come from. And, and so like, I think, he's both over intellectualizing it, but also like just having the wrong perspective on, um, how to create and like, you know, being, uh, open to, to maybe the wrong avenues, you know? Right. Yeah. The, I mean, I think that this movie for me is about 
why we create, which is like to what end and from what end, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like what caused us to create, which he is obsessive about is that he wants to know why wasn't I, you know, why did I have this great childhood? Why are my parents so good? Like I have no inspiration, right? Like so, and so, and which is, again, his character is captured so painfully perfect because I feel like that's such a very young thought. And yes. that's something that I, I personally yeah. felt like, and, and I did have. Like how can I be a I tortured think, genius if I'm never yeah. tortured? Ugh, I know. Right. Or how can yeah. I create genius if I'm never tortured? Right. right. Yeah. And, um, and so, and so. I, and then, so I, I think it ends up, and then also I think it's about that why, like for what end, which, which is what is the purpose of this creation? Like, mm-hmm. is it for us or is it for, um, is well, it for right or, yeah. 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 And, and I think you're right. I think his character, and I'm not sure if it makes this point too, which is, and I don't love this point, but I also, I don't know, I can't help, but also think about it because I love the movie so much, which is that to a certain extent, is there something born in us that makes us just amazing at some of this stuff? And I hate that argument. Like I talk about it a lot with my students where I'm like talent. I don't believe in talent. I don't, I believe that it's hard work. It's about going back. And I do believe that in a lot of ways and stuff like that, but there's something about, and maybe this connects to the you know, savantism or things like that, that seems to allow for Frank to create better. That seems somewhat innate than for Donald Gleason. And we find out that it's not because of their childhoods because he didn't have a horrible childhood. They had the same. And so what is it that made Donald Gleason too over intellectualizing, intellectualizing on things and what made Frank seem to be completely in the moment. Right. Right. And, and even the other, the other ones in there, like who seem to, to truly come together and, and have that state of mind. And, and there is a little bit of a sadness. There's a happiness to the ending, but there's a sadness because Donald Gleason does not fit in there, right? His character, John, I shouldn't say Donald Gleason, Donald Gleason, I'm sure does. Um, John does not fit in that scenario. Like he just, he in this particular case, like he's just, he is too over intellectualizing. And it's, and then again, I don't know if it's because of talent or if it's just because he cannot be in that moment. Right. But I think to me, and, like that ending feels to me, it feels happier because I think John now knows more about exactly. who he is. He's more aware. Yeah. He has more insight and that's really important for him moving forward. Yeah. I, th- I think the thing that's most interesting uh, about what you're saying with this movie in particular is that, I mean, you definitely have the extremes, right? You have John who desperately wants to be known. Like, I think that's the reason they have the overlay of his Tumblr page and his Twitter followers constantly throughout this process. And then you have the, uh, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's character who, does not care about notoriety, has no interest in it. But then you have Frank, and Frank is somewhere in the middle. Like, at the start, yeah. you would assume he's going to be like, I don't want people to know this is not what this is about. But then when he, there's a scene when they go to South by Southwest when he realizes how nobody knows who they are, and he's actually really upset by this because John mm-hmm. has excited him and kind of pushed him towards this notoriety, and he, I think he kind of liked that idea. He wanted other people to hear this music. So I love that it's not just a black and white thing that you have Frank kind of on that balance beam in the middle between the two sides. Yeah, I completely agree. He He's really kind of like the bright sort of uh, balance between the 
sort of harsh extremes of Donald Gleason's character and Hall's character for sure. Yeah. There's a, a wonderful, I mean, I just love like you get stuff about the French, you know, the two, the drummer and the, the, the uh, bassist, is he a bassist or is he a guitarist or he does many the things. Guitarist, yeah. But, um, they'll play made up <laughs> instruments anyway. It's fine. I know. Sure. <laughs> the, um, the theremin. They, yeah. they, they do a nice thing of like, you know, they probably do get the shortest, you know, amount of kind of screen story time. and screen time. But man, when they just say like they leave Frank and they're like, we're not playing without Claire. Like, I don't know. I just was like, man, that's just like cool. Like, <laughs> I was just like, that's just, and it's not so much that I want someone to walk away. It's that the people, those three, Clara and the other two are the most, they know what they want. They all know right. that what, what they want out of this music, which is not that crap that, you know, what's his name wants to pedal. And Frank, you're right, gets kind of in the middle of this pull of like that he wants a little bit of no, notoriety and he, he wouldn't mind it. That sounds kind of exciting, but that he doesn't have the capacity to really deal with that. Yeah, not at and all. And that, yeah, and it's just, and and which is heartbreaking. I mean, that's yeah. that. The South by Southwest is heartbreaking. Too. Yeah, it is. Yeah, very hard to watch, and and it's like, I'm like always so happy that this movie kind of ends, especially because Donald Gleason does not. It takes him so long until obviously the very end of that right experience to like really realize that he fucked up. <laughs> yeah, he's got to get hit by a car to realize he fucked up. That's yeah. <laughs> um, so I also want to talk about production value a little bit, and uh, the two things I really noticed. One is that I like that. You know, without making it blatant, the scenes in Europe and the scenes in the States just look and feel different. And they did a very good job of kind of choosing where they filmed uh, to make it feel like two very different places because everything changes when they go to South by Southwest. Uh, but the other yeah. thing is just the sound, the sound in this film, and it has to be, is amazing. Like I love that it starts like as you as you start the movie and it's like just got the, you know, kind of opening credits for the studios. You've got these like weird sounds that don't really match and don't form a song right before it opens up and you see Donald Gleason trying to, you know, write a song in his head. And I love that like it sets the tone for that weirdness from the first scene and really never lets up. And I think until maybe the end of the film I don't think there's a song in there that you feel like, oh, that's that's a song you you can sing along to. Like it's it's just mm. delightfully weird and really fits with the kind of style. Like whether you're talking about Frank Sidebottom or, you know, like those type of bands where it, it's not about like, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It's about creating something different and and like something you've never heard before. And I think the sound of this film really captures that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, I don't, I, I mean, I'm trying to think like, like, I think I don't eat, I didn't even like, the sound didn't even register to me. I, I know what you're talking about, like, now that I'm like, you know, thinking back on it, but I think what that speaks to is the sound just being perfect for the themes mm -hmm. um, of of the story, um, you know, me not <laughs> have, me not having it well, registered. Well, I mean, I remember some of the songs and stuff like that. Like, I mean, I certainly seem, remember the song seem, in the end. But I know. Like, but they seem very well woven. Like, I feel mm -hmm. like there's music always going on. And yeah. it just feels perfectly woven. Woven. Yeah. Right? Which is woven. so I can I can hear it and I can – but it's – you're right. There's nothing that necessarily sticks out as, like, particularly, like, oh, 
I remember that song. So it just seems to. It's not John Williams. <laughs> what we're saying. I wasn't saying that. Oh, I know. But I just say it's like woven, not manipulative, you know, right. those types of things. Yeah, yeah absolutely. All right. Uh, so let's talk about some of our favorite scenes. So I'm going to start and we're just going to start with the end uh, because the final scene in this movie, it, it, it transfers this movie from being very good to great, in my opinion. Like it just, it's a phenomenal <laughs> moment. It's so good. Um, and it's so good mainly because of Fassbender's performance. And I love, and it says so much about his character and that kind of ties in to our theme uh, of savantism. I love the only time he's really able to connect with people on that level is through music. Like he would never say, he would never take these people aside and say, hey, I love all you guys. Just so you know, like he's yeah. unable to do that. And the kind of the 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 combination of joy and, and pain on his face during oh, this song where he kind of realizes tears. that this is kind of it's never going to be the same. But I need to tell these people how much I care. And this is the only way I know how to do it. And I love that everyone in the band kind of makes it possible for him. Like they, they change the instruments they're playing. They, they change the style they're playing so he can process this and they can connect. And it's just such a beautiful moment. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that was that's my favorite moment in the movie as well. Um, the song's gonna. I mean, the song that song. I love you. I mean, it just sticks in your head. It does. And that it's so moving. And you're right. Like thinking about it, like just the simple uh, choices that they make with, like you know, ha- like you said, Dave, having the other 
um, you know, musicians sort of just, okay, this is happening. Let's, let's sort mm-hmm. of, let, let's make this happen and, and make it work for him and support him, you know, and, and it's like a musical hug of, right. of this guy who like, you know, this is his language and it's so beautiful. And, uh, I'm getting teary. I just thinking about it. The, the movie ends with that scene. And then before that scene, you know, we see, obviously we see Frank in his, his home with his, his childhood home with his parents. And I think that that scene is so integral to this movie. Yes. Um, because it like, I think like as a society, we have like this concept around mental health and um, the other, you know, uh, mental illness in general. We have this like weird idea. that's like, oh, creativity, mental illness, those things go hand in hand, you know, like and I think this movie does a great job of just like cutting that that that, you know, argument down a little bit and the sort right. of de-romanticizes it in mm-hmm. a way that is super important. Yeah. And I also love yeah. that there's not this uh, – sometimes with mental illness, there is a cause. Sometimes there is a traumatic event that happens. But there's a lot we don't yeah. know. And sometimes yeah. things just happen and we don't really know why. And I love – then unless they bring that up, like nothing happened. He's just yeah. he's just ill and this is who he is. So – You know, we have to accept that. And I love that they put that in there because it's a lot of times I think as filmgoers, audiences want things explained. They want things wrapped up and something and life isn't like that. Like life doesn't just get wrapped up. I also love that in that scene, we still don't get like the Michael Fassbender movie star moment. Like his, you know, his hair is balding in patches because of the head. You know, he's got these like scratches across his head going on. Like I love it. It would have been very easy to be like, well, we have Michael Fassbender. We should just, you know, have him there and looking like himself because people like him. But instead they chose to like put the, you know, put the scarring on and the, the balding patches. And I love that they went that route. I hope it's not romantic. Sometimes I worry it is, but romanticizing aspects of it. But I do think they do a good job with that. But I think that it, they they jump past it because it's not really about it. Like I feel no, it's like not about mental illness. So yeah, this story yeah. becomes it does wrap up very nicely, and I think more nicely. And it is a very kind of has a very kind of happy ending. Learn what do we learn from this kind of thing? Um, but it is bittersweet, right? It's not just like, oh, everything's wrapped up with a bow. Everyone's happy. Like, we don't know, like, what happens to Frank after this. Like, that could have been no, a goodbye, no, you know? I and that's sad. Know. I don't – to me, I don't think it was a goodbye because I don't think that, one, he would have come all the way there to just say goodbye. Like, I think that I think it was him coming back to music. Like, I think it's him coming back – he can't like he's in the his parents' house and he's playing with a little thing to make weird sounds. Uh-huh. And so the fact that each one of them joins and turns away from what they have been doing for the last two weeks and falls back perfectly into this says to me that this is that this is where they needed to be all the time. And the fact that the outsider who kind of messed things up is the one that leaves, you know, says to me, it didn't feel like it. It didn't. And, and I think that's why to, and you're right. It could totally, I mean, I could see it going either right. direction. Like they yeah, could go on tour next. He could build a new head and off to, <laughs> off to tour, off to create more, more music. But it yeah. also, I mean, who knows? It's, it's a very weird tonally. The, that scene is very I mean, odd tonally. I know, I think they're just going to stay there. Like that's well, where they yeah. meant to be. Like yeah. they're just going to yeah. stay in the place that, they, that 
And that's what is makes them happy. And that's what is art to them is playing to a crowd of no one because they're playing for themselves and yeah. not for yeah. anyone else. I, I think you're right. I, I think it could be viewed that way. I, I think it can be viewed a number of ways. I, I think an important like fact of that scene is that he doesn't have the paper mache head. Yeah. Um, that that's, and he's actually making way. eye contact. Like he's, he's not looking away. Contact. Yeah. He's crying. Um, you know, I, and that's just, you know, maybe he just, as you said, Jessica, like not, not really knowing how to process how he's feeling these emotions, telling, you know, ex expressing his emotions. But I think him not having the paper mache head says something. I just don't know what it says exactly. <laughs> You know. See, to me, the the paper mache head is. I mean, yeah, you're right. I don't maybe know what it means. Maybe but it's just simply growth. You know, maybe I don't know. I don't like. To me, I don't necessarily think that we were ever meant to see the paper mache head as something holding him back. Like, I don't. I didn't really see it. Like, if he he doesn't put it on, but I don't think. I. I mean, I think that that's not necessarily. I mean, if we're. You know. I think that that was a part of his, that allowed him to be someone that he wanted to be and, and allowed him to, to do something. And that made him feel comfortable. And I didn't necessarily see that as, as a negative, like that it no. needed to be taken well, I off. I didn't see it as a negative, but I do think it was holding him back from connecting with people on a deeper level. And I think that's what that last scene is about. It's finally connecting with these people who obviously care about him and he obviously cares about them, but there are things he's never said to them. And I think he's realized how important they were when they separated. And now it's like, oh, this is real. I need to make amends. I need to connect. I don't know. I think saying your facial expressions is is pretty good connection. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. can thank John um, for that. That's actually another scene I love is when – uh, John and Frank are talking about like he's talking about how weird faces are like just generally uh -huh. speaking like yeah. I just think that scene is so charming and you uh -huh. can see I think that's the first moment where you really at least for me where I saw why John was so like infatuated with Frank like mm -hmm. he's really charming despite the fact uh -huh. that he's behind this head and is intimidating and weird and over the top like you're like oh but you're a real human under there like I think that's the first moment you really see him when he's not telling him to like hatch an egg or you know, do crazy stuff on the keyboards, you know, like it's a yeah. real human moment there. All right. So let's talk about the theme really quickly. I think we've, we've touched on it a fair amount already. So we have to spend a bunch of time on savantism, but I think there's so many moments where it comes up in this movie and I didn't really realize how often it came up. Like, I think I just, the other times I've watched this movie, I haven't like really, really focused on it and like taking notes and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just like enjoying the process. And then, you know, mm -hmm. doing this episode, I'm like, oh man, it comes up a lot. Like him getting you know, stopped by the police and he's like, I have a certificate. Like this is, this mm -hmm. is a real thing. Um, the fact that he's like constantly hiding himself away and the, the scene where he's in, where he's in the shower is another like very <laughs> weird, but very comedic moment. I love that he has like a, a head that he wears in the shower too. Like, I just like, yeah. <laughs> think that's fantastic. Uh, but it is very much a part of his character and how, how he's so careful about each and every detail of, of what gets done on the album. I think that plays into this savantism too, is that he has always had this ear for music and this ability to kind of do different things with music and to play and to just pick things up really quickly. So because he you know, expects perfection out of himself. I, I like that there's a bunch of scenes in there where he expects perfection out of everyone else. You know, if one thing mm -hmm. is wrong, it's like, no, we have to start over. I didn't 
you know, truthfully, I didn't think about savantism specifically. Um, I had forgotten, <laughs> Dave, what the theme was going to be. Uh, and then thinking about it after after the fact, you know, I don't know much about it. I, I, I know that, um, you know, it can it can sometimes correspond to certain um, talents musically, mathematically, those types of things, and those character quirks that we see in Frank. Um, you know, I I was tr- I, as I was uh, thinking about this before we recorded, I was thinking of like other movies that deals with savantism. Like I couldn't pinpoint like. I, certainly, like mental illness, but like Rain Man, Rain, Rain Man, Man was one. one. Yeah. Certainly, that was that's the big one. But what are some others? Like, I just feel like this. I don't know. This treats it so. I think, I think very beautifully and comedically simultaneously. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think that's the that's the reason I didn't do Rain Man. Like that was the first one that jumped to mind when I was thinking about savantism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a little, it's a little dated and it's a little, it doesn't take it super seriously. So I decided to like go a, go a different route, uh, than that. But I think any movie where you are talking about, especially musical or mathematical genius, you can tie in savantism, like any movie about Beethoven, any movie, like Goodwill Hunting was something that I almost put on here, uh, you know, A Beautiful Mind. I'm just, except that movie sucks. So I'd never put that in the podcast. So. (laughs) I figured yeah. you'd hate that movie. Oh, it's terrible. Garbage. I don't didn't see it. It was very melodramatic. You're, you're missing nothing. Don't worry. You've saved <laughs> two hours of your life by not watching it. So. <laughs> I think, um, you know, it's funny because I was like, yeah, less inclined. I mean, rewatching it again, I was thinking about, I was thinking about the savantism thing and, and, you know, the way, especially the way afterwards that he behaves um, once the mask is off. Mm-hmm. You know, like that seems there's some aspects mm-hmm. of it that seem very right. It seems to pinpoint it a little more. But to me, like it didn't seem completely um, like that. Like I didn't really think of it that way, I think, before that or the entire movie. So I wasn't 100 percent sure. Like is savantism something that can be gotten over by simply wearing a mask? Right. Well, I don't think he's getting over it. I think he's just protecting himself from the world. I think I think there's a good chance that about half of savants um, also have autism. It's a yeah. really common crossover. And given his like inability to connect with people outside of the world of music and his kind of repetitive behaviors and him only focusing on music and him hiding himself away, like I think there's a pretty good chance he's on the autism spectrum disorder too. So I think this yeah. is his shield – to the outside world, which is like dangerous and scary because people don't interact like I do. Yeah, I know. I, I think, um, it's, it definitely, yeah. Rewatching again, I was like, okay, yeah, I can totally see like little moments of that. But I think when I first watched it, I didn't really connect it with that. It was more of that. This was, um, a, a skin or a layer that helped him be him. And right. that felt, because I think remember his, his, his top, like his father says that he's like, he was at 12. Like it was like pretty late in life that he, and then he asked to make it and then he made it. And so I was like, gosh, so I guess it made me think of more, um, like personalities of, of how, and, and I think it's also because I read that article and I was thinking about that, but I, 
the article by John Ronson, which talked about the actual Frank Sidebottom, who would take it off and on and um, and he sometimes, and it was actually more like a different character. Like he had his name and then you would right. have to say, can I talk to Frank? So Who was it? His, his name is Chris Spivey, right? Yeah. Sibby? Sibby? Must be exhausting to be that guy's friend. Oh, jeez. I know. Yeah. Can I talk to Chris now, Frank? Just calm down. I know. Which he had a wife and kids. All right. Um, so the last thing to talk about is the new movie that's coming out, uh, which is also kind of about savantism, which is The Accountant uh, with Ben Affleck. Um, so are you guys excited about this movie? Yes? Should no? We've already maybe? Seen it? No, it hasn't no, come out yet. Out yet. <laughs> out yet. Gosh, Jessica. I'm really not prepared for that one. Account Fleck. No. That's what it's <laughs> yes. called, right? Uh, yeah, we, we saw the trailer, you know, it, I'm intrigued. I'm definitely intrigued. I, I, I don't know. I, I, there's something I, I can't usually get behind Ben Affleck as an actor. Um, I'm glad you added as an actor at the end of that. As an actor. Yeah. And you then just can't get behind role, Ben Affleck. But he can get nice. behind him sexually. I can get behind him. All day long. Uh, no, Impressive. You know, some, <laughs> yeah. All day long. Something about like him playing this accountant uh, savant type character just seems like from the trailer, it seems like comical in a bad way. Hmm. Like it, it seems like it's going to hit all like the sort of big Hollywood like cliched notes. That's that's my fear. I don't know if that looks like sure. that. It's my fear. But it could be interesting, you know? It looks kind of interesting. We're see it. I think it's got some punches in it. It's got some guns. I'm down. It does. <laughs> yeah, when I heard guns about this punches. when I heard about this movie, like before I saw the trailer, I was like, that sounds fucking awful. I want nothing to do with that. Then I saw the trailer and I was like, you know what? That looks like a fun like genre film like that. Like I'm not expecting it to like light the world on fire, be like the best movie of the year. But I like most of the actors involved in it. Like, I, I'm one of those people who's always liked Ben Affleck, like, you know, since the first time I saw him in Goodwill Hunting and on. But I think in general, <laughs> he makes good movies. He directs good movies. So he kind of has, you know, and even in bad movies recently, he was the good part of it. So, you know, I'm, I'm down for a, a Ben Affleck movie. I mean, it's a terrible title. Uh, but, <laughs> like, it's not exciting. It's not like, ooh, I can't wait to see The Accountant. The accountant. No, that doesn't really grab you but yeah i'm down it's not a movie if you were just going based off of marquee yeah. what right should I see? what should i see accountant like... or dogs and cats <laughs> colon in the end they get their come up <laughs> it's <laughs> a long title be... <laughs> very long I, i'm working on it this is i'm workshopping you it workshop i don't think the <laughs> I don't think the marquee's going to have comeuppance. <laughs> yes. uh, all right. Before you guys head out, why don't you tell people where they can find you online? Sure. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Joy Sandwich. I'm at Subject Plus Verb. Um, and we're at uh, JoySandwich.com and all the other places you can find podcasts. Singing All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Uh, if you want to connect with the show, you can do so a number of ways. You can go to followingfilms.com and listen to the other great movie podcasts there. Or you can connect with me on Twitter at PC Case Study. 
Uh, if you want to go the extra mile, feel free to donate on our Patreon page. And if you donate on a per episode basis, you can actually get some pretty cool rewards. So check that out as well at patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. So, of course, the next time uh, you hear me, hopefully I'll be doing a review of The Accountant to go with the movie we covered this week, Frank. So until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Me, they're just like, you got a pulse? <laughs> Do you know how to form a sentence? Do you, can you, you read? You get in here. <gasps> Teach these kids how to write. <laughs> Good, the cowboys need black, we got room around.